I'm Floyd Hall, and this is Today, Maybe, Forever. And today, I have the pleasure of speaking with printmaker Jamal Barber. Jamal, how you doing? I'm good, man. How you doing? I'm doing very well. Glad to have some time with you. I want to ask you about your your pre-printmaking days, because I, I don't know a lot about that part of your of your art career. So I, I want to get, you know, maybe a, a snapshot of, of who you were as as a as a visual artist before um, you made the transition. Well, I mean, from watercolors and, and other mediums, but before you became a printmaker, what was your 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 perspective there? Um, I don't I don't know what I was doing <laughs> because with you, I was doing man, I was doing some of everything, trying to be somebody else, trying to be everybody else, trying to just look and find. Uh, what I wanted to be. I didn't know. I was unsure. I was uncertain. I was doing a lot of different stuff and I was taking too much time to do a lot of nothing. That's what I felt like. Mm-hmm. And, and it was more of a point where, man, I would look at, I was trying to be everybody else, everybody that I love. Kevin Williams, um, he people know him as whack. I tried to be him, try to be Charlie Palmer, um, Tamara Madden, just, just all, all this nonsense. You know, I don't think I found myself as an artist until I switched to printmaking. And which is something about that switch. It was like I didn't have any references because I didn't know any black printmakers. So when I picked it up, it was really like, what am I going to do? Me, Jamal, this is only about me. I don't know any other printmakers. I didn't know any at the time. And I had to come up with something because I felt it. I would tell you a story about where I started printmaking. Hmm. Yo, I started printmaking. I went to Binders. Me and my man Dave went to Binders to see this printmaking demo. And it was something about looking at this screen printing demo. And I just understood the process. It was just, I don't know, something about the layering and the ordering and and all this other stuff. It's just like I, I got it. And I could, I had an idea of doing something different than what I was doing. Cause I always had that feeling that what I was doing was not art. I know people feel like that all the time. I, f- I kind of feel like that sometimes now, but it's like, this is not the art that I want to make. And something about that screen printing process gave me a in, and it, it gave me such a, a, a break from anything that I knew that it gave, it gave me the opportunity to fill it up with me. So now I can look at all kinds of people. I can look at Elizabeth Catlett, Charles White, Ron Adams, um, Steve Prince, uh, a whole lot of people, Delita Martin. Uh, I can look at anybody's art and take it in. And what still comes out to this day is me. So that's what printmaking gave me. So before that, I don't know what I was doing. I was lost. (laughs) (laughs) But, But do you feel like maybe something in that in that earlier stage um, gave you at least a, a working vocabulary that pays dividends in, in other ways. For example, for instance, um, I feel like you make really, or have done really great collaborations. Yeah. So for collaborations um, for collaborating with someone like, like Charlie Palmer, for example, yeah. how does your past as a, as a painter maybe help you understand how to work with him now that you're a printmaker, like is is there is there anything in your past that kind of helps you collaborate 
uh, with non-printmakers easier? I don't I don't know if if because because honestly, I wasn't that great at it. <laughs> right. So I wasn't I wasn't that great of a of a painter uh-huh. in, in order to have any real understanding of what what they have going on. Like first of my like Charlie. Charlie's amazing. Charlie's amazing. Right. So yeah. I um I picked Charlie <laughs> it's funny. What's up, Charlie? I picked up Charlie as a as a mentor. He don't know he's my mentor, but I, I, I consider him my mentor. Just going to his studio because he, he's represented by Zukai Gallery too. Shout out to Zukai Gallery for, for helping a brother out. So um, going to his studio and hanging out with him and just seeing his process. It I think printmaking, the thing that I loved about printmaking was the process of it. Is that whenever you could spend, I would spend months doing a painting and just be lost in it. Just making marks and, and wasting time. Just doing, wasting ink, wasting all kinds of stuff. And, and having no idea where I was going with it. And feeling uncomfortable in it. Like some artists can like that feeling as they're exploring kind of themselves with the paint. I never had that feeling. I was always lost. Printmaking gave me a process to lean on at all times. Cause I know in order to do the next thing, I need to do this thing like this to get this result. And it's always, I can always go back to like woodcuts. When I, when I teach woodcut class, I tell them it's wood, ink, paper. That's what it is. You're going to do something to your wood, carve it, manipulate it, you can do something to your ink, change the color, change the consistency. You can do something to your paper. You can paint the paper, change the paper, get different papers. Like it's, it's that simple, like in the end. So I always have that structure to come back to. So it never, I never get lost in it. And so my understanding of the printmaking process helps me more with my collaborations because I can see what they do and translate it into what I do. And that's kind of the big thing about collaborating with me is that I'm open. Like anything you do, I'm going to find a way to make a print out of it. Because I know how to make a good print. You know how to make good art. I know how to make a good print. Hey, we should work together all the time. That's what I say. One of the things that I wanted to, to really ask you about is your influences. Because I've heard you talk about Emery Douglas before. Yeah. And I haven't really heard you dive deep into what his work means to you. Okay, so Emory Douglas, um, for those who don't know, he was the um, minister of culture for the Black Panthers. So he was responsible for making all of the Black Panther Black Panther posters and, and the newsletters and all that stuff. He did it for like 12 years, like every week. So his work is... His work is unique, I think. It's not, you know, it's it's world-class draftsman, right? Like Charles White, world-class draftsman. Nobody could draw like that guy could. Or John Biggers, like the guy was just amazing with the pencil. So Emory Douglas is not that. But he had an energy to his, to his pieces. And he had a, a strict point of view. And once you really know the history of the Black Panthers, you realize that he was making this stuff in a time for movement in the movement at the time. Like, so it wasn't about style or doing this other thing. He did it because that's what he had to do and he felt like it. So I'm very attracted to the energy of Emory Douglas, right? Even even the artwork you can appreciate and it's, I mean, it's simplified people, it's people with guns, some of the more provocative stuff like pigs in, in cop uniforms, like stuff like that. But it had like, it had a point of view 
And I think I'm attracted to that point of view more than anything. Like it's, it's such a strong thing. And then as an artist, most of the artists that I admire have that kind of thing about them where it's them completely. Like, you know how true it is. So with Emory Douglas, you know, in a revolution, one lives or one dies. That's the truth. Like, so, you know, it's a, it's a woman with a gun, you know, with an Afro, she ready. She got the stripes in the background. Like it's a, it's a moment as it, it communicates so much. And I think that's what I like about Emory Douglas, like the most. And he was doing it at, in, in real time when they were under attack from the yeah. government, where they were getting calls like, Hey man, they done shot Bobby. You know what I'm saying? They done locked up the Oakland chapter. It's like, you know, they were under attack and he was still there in the moment doing the magic. I think that's what I love about Emory Douglas. I think there's an urgency in that. Yeah. It's, a, it's an urgency. And, and, and I think not only an urgency, but again, to your, your, your point about having a point of view, I think that plus the urgency yeah. kind of gives it a certain um, mythology that when you look back at it now, it's, it's hard to maybe fathom yeah. the reality that they were confronting. Yeah. And you can't recreate it. Right. Like you, you have to be that person. You have to be Emory Douglas Yeah. sitting there and we got to release this, this newsletter. Yeah. So I'm going to make it. Anybody also, I, I think people maybe at, at least in 2017, maybe are not aware that, that there, that there was a newsletter, you know, right, that, yeah. that there was actually, uh, you know, a pretty, yeah. uh, expansive. It was, he made a lot you know, of stuff. Yeah. He made a lot of stuff. And I, I got a, a couple books on them. Um, and, and I like that process. Like it's an immediacy to it. Like you said, like an urgency. And then he wasn't holding back and this was who he was. This is what he believed. He put it all out on the line. These, these politicians are crooked. They screwing you. You need to arm up and be ready. Like they coming for us. You know what I'm saying? He, he, that was who he was. And if you have to be who you are, especially as an artist, and I think it's something about that value to that, that I've, I haven't seen anything like it, me personally, that, that I can think of to make that kind of art in that context. And it still reads. I mean, it's I, I didn't start looking him up till when I switched to printmaking. I didn't know a lot of black printmakers. So on one hand, it allowed me to develop my own style separate from influences. But then it also gave me the opportunity to kind of discover a lot of these people like really read about them and really try to understand how they're making the stuff they were making and his whole story has fascinated me but i get that with your work though like i look at your work and i feel like there is there's a a a a distinct perspective that you have with with your work and i think that you are very intentional about how you feel about certain things and you make that pretty well known at least in some of the prints that i've seen of yours and so i feel like there's a difference of time and space and everything else but i do feel like with with your work i do get a certain sense of 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 that energy where you're being very direct with the viewer about what they're gonna about what you're trying to say oh yeah i hope i hope i am (laughs) you know it's kind of i don't know it's, it's, it's one of the things where um Art can be so personal, right? Like, so if you talk to any artist, they always say the same thing. Man, I've been drawing since I was a kid. I didn't, that, and that was me. I got all the same stories, uh, all the other artists you ever heard drawn on the back of my test and, you know what I'm saying, graffiti in the hallway. Like, I was all that. 
And so, um, moving for me, art became the kind of thing that I went to that gave me kind of a release and control in the world. Right. So it was like, um, I wanted to be able to at least have something that was mine and that was and art always became that. So I started drawing when I was happy, started drawing when I was sad, started drawing when I was bored, started doing all this kind of stuff. And eventually art became like the only way that I felt comfortable expressing myself. So moving, I mean, fast forward to past college where I got graphic design degree and past painting into printmaking. I knew I wanted to say something and I knew that back to we were talking about um, learning at EPI um, earlier, just the idea that that when I sit down at the, at the table to draw something, if I'm not drawing something that is personal to me, nothing comes out, you know, and you kind of you deal with that after a while. It's like you see. You know, everybody does this kind of look around at other people, see what are they doing at making money or they're doing women with dresses or they're doing sunsets or, you know, whatever. Like, you know, do drawing horses, abstract horses. I can't draw an abstract horse like because when I sit down, that's not what comes out. So the quicker, the fastest way that I came to the conclusion that if I'm going to do something, it's going to mean something to me or else I won't do it. And that's kind of where it came from. So once you have that predicament, it's either make no art or make this art. That's kind of where I'm at. And I feel like with with all that I've seen of your work, what matters to you in some context is blackness. Yeah. And even as I've gotten to know you better, there still seems to be um, almost a separate persona of the person that I I I see in public because you pretty mild mannered, pretty yeah, uh, you smile a lot, laugh a lot, and yeah. I and I'm I'm like okay, great, that's Jamal, but I see your work and I'm like Jamal is angry, <laughs> something is bothering Jamal, and he, you know, and, and he's not letting it pass. He has to get it out, and so that's the part that I always and sometimes I like I actually you know enjoy that because it's like okay. I know Jamal has something to say, but you I feel like you say it in your work. I mean, you you'll say it in conversation, too, but it just feels like there's a distinct persona switch when it's come when it comes to your work. That's true, because because, you know, I, I have to work real hard to be I'm real introverted people person. You know what I'm saying? My wife would tell you, like when I go out to events and stuff, I'm hanging out. Now I come home, I'm dead tired because it takes me like a lot of effort to like get myself up, go out and kind of be around people. So, and, and I enjoy it once I get there, but it's very hard for me to get there. But when I'm sitting at home with my work and it's just me, it's like, like back to the connection to the personal stuff. Like that's when whatever's on my mind is going to come out. And most of the time it is like black stuff, especially, you know what, you know what really happened? Um, that really made me change Trayvon Martin. Trayvon Martin was like a turning point for me. I don't know what it was. I mean, I, you know, black people have been getting killed by police a long time. Or, you know, a lot of abuses. Like, you know it. I'll tell you the story about North Carolina, how I feel about how segregated it was and stuff like that. But something about when Trayvon Martin happened, it was like, all the other stuff that you do don't matter. 
And so the only thing that matters is that you were black in that neighborhood with uh, with whatever you had on. Because if it wasn't a hoodie, if he had on any other thing, he still would have been suspicious because he was black. And so I could have easily been Trayvon Martin. Like, you know, you do little stuff when you were a kid growing up and then kind of pay the ultimate price for it. It just seems like real, real dramatic. And to be for him to be treated how he was affected me, too, because it really made me think like, damn, these people really don't care. And so I I don't know, something about that moment kind of fueled yeah. my anger. It's like, yo, I, this is not right. Somebody got to say something. Somebody got to be dead about this. Like my man DB is So I want to go back to North Carolina. I want to go back and and I want you to try to answer this question. When did you know you were black? I mean, that's like a weird question, but like yeah. I, 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 I want to go back there and like when was that identity formed for you? Okay, that's that is a good question. I don't. I've always knew I was black, and so in in North Carolina, I went to in Littleton, North Carolina, and. It was a very small town and it's like real rural, real poor. And most of the people there were black. And so most of the people I hung around were black. My family was black. My neighbors were black. I went to a mostly black school. The school was 96% black. And they coincidentally had a white, uh, 85, 90% white school. Like that was the rival high school, like in the same town and next town over. So that kind of fueled my ideas of, what segregation was right what it what it really was you can read about it but then you see in the parade uh two separate schools one is mostly white and one is mostly black like it don't get no more plain for you than that so the white school had the new instruments funding from the school district all that kind of stuff in northwest we had used instruments and you know uh, borrowed uniforms and but we still had soul so it wasn't it wasn't so our band was still like immaculate. We loved it. My man Reggie was in it. He used to play the quads. He was he was a beast. So, you know, you loved it and experienced this idea of blackness in a in a different kind of way. Like they almost wanted to protect you from what was happening. But, you know, it don't take long before you start to see inequities. I think it happens pretty early. I think kids are indoctrinated pretty quickly, especially. I mean, think about it. Um. And, and this is an extreme example, but the nurse that was dancing with the black baby to rap music in the nursery, right? That baby has been indoctrinated already. He don't even know what's going on. He's being viewed as a thug, right? So take that same kid and go to a daycare. Fast forward like a year and a half. It, it doesn't take much for a white kid to know he can do stuff that this black kid can't do. It don't take much to know for a black kid to get his hand smacked or told to sit down but you don't tell the other little boy to sit down it i mean that's an inherent thing like it, it don't take much to realize that so the exact point that i start to rebel against what i was seeing or get angry about it was probably man i don't know i think it was always there i think it was just something that you just knew it won't right and, you know, once you start hearing the stories and, and, you know, your dad's telling you about what happened to him at this one time and, you know, you hear the stories from your uncle and your grandma and 
all these other people it's like yo these people are the salt of earth people they, they ain't never do nothing to nobody but they still got treated a certain way why it's because they're black it's like damn and then that's just a fact it just sits on you and some people take it and kind of move on from it but I, I don't know if I ever moved on from it from that realization that damn they really did get treated differently because they were black there's nothing you can do about it and that's a weird realization to have as a kid especially when you're trying to control the world trying to get, find your place it's, it's just a weird time so when do you or how did you go from that realization and begin to explore the I would say the perception of your blackness, because I feel like in your in your art, you're you're both exploring blackness, but then you're also exploring the perception of that blackness. Yeah. By maybe outside folks. Yeah. How do you how or when did you start to maybe identify, you know, or play on both sides of that fence, if you will? I think when I got to college, I tell people. When I get to college, that was the first time I had like a meaningful interaction with a white person. And that's not that's not my fault. You know, I didn't I didn't choose it. I didn't say, you know, you know, I'm never going to do this on purpose. It just never happened. Like everybody I knew was black. My school was black. My teachers were black. My mama, my whole family, all her friends was black. So that wasn't the point. But when I got to college and I had a white roommate, it was it was it was a shock in the sense that I didn't know what to expect. It's kind of like you just feel a certain way in this abstract kind of these things are happening to you. And then you start to maneuver how to deal with it. I don't, I don't, I don't hold it against white people. My experience, right? It's just my experience was my experience. And I give everybody the benefit of the doubt. So that's not, that's not necessarily the case, but at the same time, I am a black man and I know that I'm dealing with things that they don't have to deal with. Like every black person I know has a felony stop story, right? You did just think you did something terribly wrong. You got a gun to you, hands up, back towards us, get on your knees, get handcuffed. Like that's just a regular thing. And I think that's not right. You know what I'm saying? So you kind of got to navigate this stuff. So at the same time I am, I don't hold it against people. But I recognize the system. So it is a matter of recognizing the system. From a term standpoint, is there a difference between the term black and the term African-American to you? I don't think it's a difference because I think we all know it means the same thing. Right. So. You know, you can you can parse it any way you want to label it any way you want to. Like we all know that there is there are a set of ways black people are treated, people of color, non-white people, whatever you want to call it. And we know that the, we know the history of America, whether we want to admit it or not, whether we want to attribute it all to strictly coincidence. Right. Just like redlining when they say, oh, you know, we constructed this system based on who can qualify for loans. It just so happens that all the people in the red line districts that are, don't have access to loan happen to be black. You can believe that if you want to, but you know, we know that's not true. So 
So there, there is a big divide in between what people accept and what people call other. So whatever you call it, the other is still the same. Yeah. Well, even just maybe delve deeper because in some instances, black is in some ways maybe less definable than African-American. African-American is like a specific term that you're applying African and American. These are using established terms that we, you know, there's, there's some meaning there, but black to me in some conversations feels like it's, it's more of an abyss where there's a lot of things that are just deep into that, that may not, or that may be beyond the terminology of African-American. Right. I think African-American was was created to try to do something with the term to make us give us a different label than black, because for years it was you were colored or Negro or black, whatever they want to call you. And so they tried to come up with a different term to, to categorize people. But I don't think that you don't get treated any different if you call yourself African-American or if you call yourself black. So. It's almost negligible what you call yourself when you are you have been defined as a thing, right? As you have been defined as a dark skinned Negro, black, whatever. So you get that treatment no matter what you call yourself. So we, we, we've talked about black. You mentioned red in terms of redlining. Um, I think that's a great segue into color theory. Yeah. Which is. Uh, the name of of a solo show that you have, yeah, bright black. How did I get color theory out of that? No, that color, the, color theory is the book. Is the is the book? Okay, yeah. so I, I know I, I know I wasn't crazy. <laughs> I wasn't I was not crazy. So we're actually sitting here at your at your your table where we have the book laid out, pieces, yeah. pages in the book laid out. Um, and one of the things that I wanted to to talk to you about with respect to how people are treated or how they call themselves or how they try to position themselves is that it may not matter how you try to negotiate the wording or the label. Yeah. If the late, if you've already been defined as a thing. Yeah. So talk to me about color theory and, and maybe how you address that. Yeah. So color theory. So the name of the show is bright black. So the show is about um, my ideas of black blackness, black identity and what it means in America. So as you start to look at it and really ask myself, what do I think about blackness? Like, what are what are my feelings? Because, you know, it's not all negative, but it's not all positive. So I swing from this kind of um, overwhelming sense of melancholy to just blinding rage at some of the stuff that I see. So in, it, this I was born into this system. We all were like we were born into America that's already been fully formed and functioning for however many years through Jim Crow, Reconstruction, slavery, civil rights. And, you know, all those all the things that you want, they're already there. We're born into it. So it's got to be a way just this from my um, viewpoint, just from seeing how things are happening, it has to be an underlying principle. Because everybody is having these same experiences. So it's got to be a reason like this is it's not spoken, but it's all almost generally accepted. Some of the things that happen. 
and every and it's consistent over over geography. It's consistent over time, no matter what state you're in, no matter where you are, all these things are happening, right? So people are black people get pulled over more in every single state in the United States. That's not a coincidence. So it has to be a set of principles that God and that's what color theory is. Color theory is a set of principles and observation that guide the use of color. Color can be race. And I think that's what happens in America. America has a set of principles in which they look at everything and race and race is at the top of the list because. So the, I'm making this book and the book has a set of 10 prints that have all these 10 principles in it. And these principles, I think, kind of define how I see black people treated, how I see other people treated, how I see the purposeful way that America moves when it comes to race, even when they don't want to acknowledge it. And it's, it's not not meant to tear America down, but it's just it is how America is. Like we just know where we live at. Hard to describe. So that's the the book, Color Theory. And the show is bright black. Yeah. So how does color theory fit into the overall umbrella of bright black? Okay, so bright black is the idea that it came from it actually came from the color theory book because in the in the theories blackness and the color black is clearly defined where whiteness is not whiteness is only one page in the book one principle that has anything to do with white and but black has a whole bunch of principles that clearly define or or describe what is allowed and what is not allowed and i think that's because black is in this color theory, the most important color. So note about white supremacy. White supremacy is not necessarily about the complete uplifting of the white race. Not really, because it's not like, you know, every white man gets a million dollars. Like that's not what white supremacy is. White supremacy is that the black man should not have access to a home. White or not, like, you know, it, it's it's the objective you get to the result of more white people have homes, but the explicit intent is to keep black people from getting homes. And so if more white people get homes, if they can afford them, like that's why there's always this argument about, well, you know, I'm, if I'm a poor white person in West Virginia, I don't have no white privilege. That's not true. That's not true. You may not, you, your circumstances may get you to be poor white in West Virginia, but the system makes black people poor in a lot of places on purpose. And so now born into 1980 into North Carolina, where for decades, hundreds of years, the system has supported not giving black people access to stuff. So now the black people are all in one place. That's not a coincidence. That, that's on purpose. That's the result of purpose, purpose, purposeful laws made to get that result. So it's not it's not random. So it's not random that that black people are employed less than other people. Like all the, all the bad stuff that you see black people in the news get more heart disease, get less treatment, have more um, more 
babies would have problems doing pregnancy, like all this kind of stuff. Like that's not an accident. That's just not because we're just out here savages with, with no understanding of life. Like this is being done to us. And over the laws, it's an interesting exhibit over at the Civil Rights Museum where they had the little family feud style board that you can flip it and see all the laws in the different states that said um, you're not allowed to rent uh, to a black person in a building that has a white occupant. You know, stuff like that. It's not I mean, this is this is not a coincidence that some of this stuff is happening and we don't want to acknowledge it. So it's not just the fact that. You know, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, work extra hard and you'll be fine. Like, no, you won't be fine because you can work extra hard. And then there's still a system put on top of you that says that if you are from this area, you cannot have access to this loan. That's not a I'm not making that up. That's in the paperwork. You know what I'm saying? So tell me about. Navigating not just your particular life, but your life and your career as an artist making this kind of work in terms of having this stance, having this perspective and having it find a reception and people wanting to connect to this work. Talk about that. I think that's the most interesting part about my career is that for the longest time I used to do um, watercolors and like acrylic paintings and like, you know, I would just do like random stuff, stuff I've seen other people do or I think that I thought would sell and kind of just trying to be like everybody else, trying to make my way. You know what I'm saying? Because, you know, you don't want to be an artist. You don't want to be a starving artist, quote unquote. You know, you want to make money like this. So that's not the point. So you're trying to at some point look for what are other people doing to make money? And you try to do that. For me, that didn't work. So when I sat down to do it, it would take me a long time to just to do a simple painting of a person that didn't mean anything, that didn't have any like point of view to it. Not my point of view that I have now, but the easiest thing in the world for me to do is to sit down and do make the work that I make now. And it is charged. Right. It's not it's racial. Right. But it's not. It's not racist. You know what I'm saying? It's racial. I'm talking about race issues. I'm talking about black people and black identity. I mean, like I said, for 18 years, I didn't have a a real conversation with a white person. I mean, you had conversations because, you know, white people were still teachers and and, you know, the clerks at the store. And like, you know, you would see some, you would know a few. but You never really sat down and like, let me chop it up with you until I got so that's for 18 years so during that time my formative years all I saw was black people and then you started to see the system and now I look back at that time and something as simple as having a cookout at the lake Lake Gaston in North Carolina it's it's such a beautiful thing is that even though all of these things is being done to you that you can take the time to be with your family you love them. You hang out with them. You're doing the cookout thing. Y'all having fun and you can have fun and be proud and don't feel inferior at all. Like you in, in when you get in those circumstances, it doesn't matter almost like, and that's, that's kind of a beautiful thing. And so when I step back and look like, especially, I mean, we talk about, right. We talk about Ronald Reagan era, you know what I'm saying? First Bush, 
Iraq war, crack epidemic, taxes, all this, all this other stuff. And the people that raised me lived through all that and all and kept me sheltered from it and still gave me confidence, still gave me love, still gave me everything that you should give a person just as a human being. I think that's a fascinating thing when then when you step outside of it and realize that they, my dad, my mom were getting harassed by police, too. And I never felt it. So I have a, a deep appreciation for that kind of struggle. I think it's it's a it's a beautiful metaphor for America. Right. To be able to adapt to this kind of oppression. You know, it's something. And that's kind of what I want to express in my artwork like that, that kind of that kind of pride that they still have. It's still in North Carolina now as bad as it is when all this crazy stuff going on with the, in the age of Trump with the marches and all this other kind of stuff. It's still two black people right now somewhere hanging out on the porch, chopping it up. You know what I'm saying? Maybe drinking the beers, maybe doing something else. You know what I'm saying? But they still living and they still doing it. And it's kind of just a kind of resilience that black people have. That's that I find fascinating. So when I when I locked on to that and you just sit back and close your eyes and think of like, what's the first thing you think of? Like I think of my family. I think of I think of as much as I hate it. I think of North Carolina. Right. And and all the things that I learned and, and grew up and experienced there and the beautiful parts, the parts that I want to express, the happy parts while still feeling the need to talk about the other parts that make me angry so you know it's, it's just a it's a balanced thing so I'm always surprised that when I do make some work that may be a little bit out there that may be a little bit more charged than than I think and people buy it I think it's fascinating so I, I, I try to I realized that that was kind of where I was going as an artist and so I just I just came to terms with this is just who I am. So if I'm going to make art, I'm going to make this kind of art, whatever it is. This kind of Elizabeth Catlett, Emory Douglas, pro-black, charge, pride, happiness, black power. Like this is what I'm going to be. And so to combat that, I'm just going to make make it as beautiful as possible, as 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 high end as I could possibly get it. And then let the chips fall where they are. So I might not have an audience. And, you know, you got to kind of at some point accept it, accept the world for what it is, accept yourself for who you are. And I don't fight it anymore. I spent a lot of time fighting it and nothing came out. Like I said before, you sit down at the table, try to do something else and nothing comes out. But then I do um, this piece for a show, Bright Black, that has a black man with all these hands pulling at his shirt and he's looking up in a way uh, almost brushing off the pulling but getting used to it and trying to move on it's called To Be Free that comes out I did that piece in two days carved it, printed it, everything so I don't know that, that's kind of the process I left myself no choice almost so it's either make nothing or make this so I made this you talk about your parents and your family who instilled love in you, who sheltered you from some things, um, but also gave you some game, gave you some 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 wisdom. Um, 
how do you how do you parent? How do you shelter your kids if that's what you choose to do or not choose to do? But how do you approach parenting as a father, given how you see the world now? Man, that's a good question, because I think about it constantly and I, I often wonder what my dad thought when he looked at me when I was a kid and what he wanted to do and give me a kind of world. Because I, I think a lot about the macro view of race in America, too. Like, so when you see stuff like Tamir Rice getting shot with no regard for who he was and then they say he looked like a grown man guy was 12 years old so you know you you see all this stuff in the in the macro with this trump and these marching tiki torch white supremacists and all these people that you know they're 20 years old like you for for a long time there was this narrative that oh all the racist people are gonna die out like you know they're just old white relics they'll never that that are just trying to hold on. But then you see literally a, a, a crowd of 20 year old white people with tiki torches out there and that hate black people. So now I consider that my kids are operating in this world and I live, you know, I live outside the city and this is a, this is a, a non black area. Right. So they, they, they have way more encounters with, with white people than I did growing up. I wanted to give them that because I, because it was not, it was not my parents intention. It wasn't there. It was just the circumstances. And that's just what happened to me. But I wanted, I didn't want my kids necessarily to have to have this kind of, I didn't want to grow the anger in them. If that makes sense. Right. So I, I, so at some point I want to protect them. But then I'm, you know, my house is full of my artwork. So they're also surrounded by black images, right? They're also surrounded by this kind of this pro blackness, this idea that they are beautiful because they are black. And so it's almost the exact same thing that I did. Right. Like, so I was with my family. We loved each other. And then we went out into the world that may not necessarily view us the same. So I think about it constantly and I don't. I don't know what the answer is, but I know how to love them. I think that's that's it, as a parent. You don't control your child's experiences, right? So even when they're they're not around me 24 seven. So when they leave me, they are they experience a lot of different things and you can't control it. The most you can do is try to give them what you have. And not necessarily what you didn't have, right? Like not like with stuff. You know what I'm saying? Like, oh, you know, I never had a bike growing up, so I'm gonna give them three bikes. Like it's it's not that kind of thing. I'm more focused on giving them what I did get from my parents. Just kind of the love and the support and the the confidence and the the do something ability, right? So so my dad was one of those people that was like, you know you can do it right. And you need to do it because nobody's going to do it for you. And like, I'm, I'm like that with my kids. So, but I, I still find it hard to look and see the kind of things they're going to experience. And I don't know when's the proper time to talk about it. 
because I kind of don't want to take their innocence. And that's probably how my parents treated us. Right. That's probably why I didn't feel a lot of the things that may have been happening to them. And I don't, you know, it's, it's a very hard thing to come to terms with, but I'm trying, you know, and, you know, love your kids. There's as much as you can do sometimes. What are you reading these days? These days I'm, I'm not reading a whole lot. I'm reading, I'm reading a lot of artist books. Like I bought, um, bought Carrie James Marshall book mastery. Um, the book about his show that's traveling around now. I read about David Driscoll. I have a, a couple books on him. I, I still read my Emory Douglas books. Um, people try to, I, they give me books and I, I often just find that I don't ever sit down and read them. I think, no, the last book I read was the Ta-Nehisi Coates Between the World and Me. That was a great book. I like that book a lot. But I, I often don't read just regular books a lot. I don't know. It's just an enjoyment thing. It's just where my interests are. I'm I'm way more into, I'm zoned into my art and to such a point that if it's not art, I don't really have time for it. That's a, that's a weird thing to say, but there's a lot of books out there that I want to read. And I get recommendations. I write them all in my sketchbook. And I don't know when I ever stop working long enough to sit down and read it. Because it just seems more productive to make something. You know, print makers want to make prints. That's what I want to do. <laughs> uh, Jamal Barber, let people know how they can find you. Oh, you can find me um, on all your social medias. J Barber Studio. J-B-A-R-B-E-R uh, Studio. No S. Uh, Instagram. I'm, I'm real active on Instagram. I put a lot of my process stuff up there. I've been giving sneak peeks of the bright black show. Not a whole lot. Like people don't, I, I want to keep it a little surprise. I think you might be the first person that, that has seen all the stuff that I'm working on. Okay. I like that. Yeah. I like that. Um, Jamal, thank you. Hey, appreciate you, man.